The Macro View, Episode 25. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. In 1913, the states ratified the 16th Amendment, imposing a tax on incomes for the first time. There had once before actually been an income tax for a brief period during the Civil War. And in the late 1800s, an income tax had passed the House and the Senate and was also signed off on by the president, only to be deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The populists in the South, though, kept pushing for an income tax and eventually found their argument picking up steam. The reason the income tax had previously been deemed unconstitutional was because all taxes had to be apportioned among the states, and income distributions varied widely among the states, and it would result in a non-apportioned tax system. In 1909, President William Howard Taft, a a staunch populist following the likes of Teddy Roosevelt, proposed a 2% income tax, and as a result of the 1894 Pollock case, a constitutional amendment was required for it to pass and hold. Senator Norris Brown of Nebraska first proposed a constitutional amendment as an actual solution, but then Senator Nelson Aldrich from Rhode Island actually put forth the proposition that ultimately would pass Congress in the summer of 1909. In 1913, Delaware, the final state needed to ratify the amendment, ratified the amendment on February 3rd, and with the precedent set by the Pollock case overturned, the U.S. was officially able to tax incomes. Prior to this, though, how did the government fund? Um, so basically it was tariffs, excise taxes, and fees mostly. And tonight we're going to look at the history of taxes pre-income tax. Then we're going to dive deeper into the implications of the 16th Amendment and all the layers of tax that, taxes that are drowning American individuals and businesses today as a result of that passing. So tonight's episode is going to be a little bit longer than episode 24 because there are a number of more line items that need to be discussed. But the general trend for all taxes has been the same. It's been upward. So we're going to dive right into the data after this quick message. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com. And click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a full history of Western civilization, John Maynard Keynes, his system and its fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. So initially, the U.S.'s, uh, yeah, the government, Uncle Sam's main source of funds were tariffs. Tariffs, uh, tariff rates in the 19th and early 20th century tended to vary pretty greatly, but they, you know, holding steady from the ratification of the Constitution until about 1816, they were pretty low at about 8%. Uh, but then to pay for the debt accumulated in the War of 1812, the tariffs were raised up to 20%, where they held pretty steady until about 1824. And then they were raised again to a weighted average rate of about 30%. 
the 30% rate was reduced back to 20% in 1833, but once again raised to 30% in 1842. And then in 1846, a reduction was passed, bringing weighted average tariffs to 25%. And then in 1857, again, once again, tariffs were reduced to 20%. But then by 61, uh, tariffs were raised again. So just a few years later, back to 30% and steadily you know, went up until the end of the Civil War, eventually reaching a high of 47% in 1865. But then when the war was over, tariffs once again began to fall. And they got back down to 20% by 1872. But the pressure in the rapidly growing industrialized North got the better of politicians. And in 1883 duties were increased against, uh, again, to about 30%. So t duties and tariffs about the same thing. They're increased to about 30%. And then in 1890, they were raised to the highest rate as of that point in history to 48%. Previous high was 47%. So they stayed there until 1897, and then they were jacked up once again, up to 57%. So in 1909, with the passage of the 16th Amendment, the income tax, Congress be began reducing tariffs in anticipation of the ratification and, and implementation of the new income tax. So with tariffs decreasing, however... Government revenues actually grew with the income tax significantly. And one of the main arguments against tariffs and, and for the income tax was that it was too easy to raise tariffs because they were kind of hidden. And there was also a big you know, portion of the North that, that enjoyed the tariffs because they, you know, they felt as though it benefited them with their higher labor costs and being industrialized compared to the actually more advanced, more industrialized European countries at the time where they were shipping in goods you know, for much cheaper. So they, you know, they thought that it protected their jobs. So it was actually really easy to get tariffs raised because they were kind of similar to the argument against something like a fair tax or, or a sales tax. It's just too easy to raise because it kind of gets hidden in the price. But eventually, one of the things, you know, when you get up to 57% average, you know, weighted average tariff rates, consumers start to notice. And that was one of the ways that the populists were able to get the income tax actually passed you know, through an, a constitutional amendment was because the tariffs had gotten so high. And remember, as we talked about in last episode, the main pitch was that lower income, middle income, this was just for basically the top one half of 1% of income earners is, are the only people this would apply to. And basically the ultra wealthy would be able to handle the entire government budget. So you know, let's get rid of tariffs. Let's start stop charging consumers so much. And let's just have this single, you know, progressive, slowly progressive rate up to 7% on the top one half of 1%. See, that sounds like it's something that you could get behind. And, you know, obviously, as we went over the history yesterday, it didn't stay that way for very long. But that was the main pitch that got it through. And the reason why it was able to go through is because tariffs were at 57%. So it basically, you know, like I said... It blew up in in people's face when, you know, they the, once they passed the income tax, government basically started levying taxes all over the pay, place and raising them. So t taxes on alcohol were actually another one of the larger sources of income for the federal government back then. And in fact, it was such a significant source of income that the main argument in the early part of the 20th century, prior to the passing of the 16th Amendment, 
against alcohol prohibition was the revenue source and how are we going to generate the revenue. The income tax actually took that argument away from Congress and ultimately, as history would tell us, gave them the financing to go ahead and pass prohibition, not thinking about the unintended consequences that would come from the creation of such a gigantic black market for such a popular good. So the history of of taxes on distilled spirits, it ranged anywhere from half of 1% to 2% of what's called a proof gallon. So, but generally it was somewhere in the 1% to 2% range throughout the 19th century. It didn't get very high and 2% was the highest it ever got. Beer was taxed at a different rate, but generally again was was between 1% and 2%. In 1863, however, it reached a low of 0.6%. And from 1898 to 1901, it was at that high of 2%. So taxes were actually generally low, and if you look at government revenues, were were generally very low throughout the 19th century, despite the high tariff rates. As a percentage of gross national product, the total government revenue, inclusive of state and local governments, averaged 5.615%, about 5.6%, from 1800 through 1913, so until the income tax was actually implemented. Uh, the peak, the peak of government revenue as a percent of, of gross national product was 8.5% following the Civil War, but it came back down to as low as 5.7% by 1880. Following the income tax, revenues to government skyrocketed. By 1934, it was already up to over 17% of gross national product reaching generational highs during World War II. Then it came back down to roughly 28% for uh, you know a few years before continuing its upward trend, reaching 37.5% by 1992. The income tax was not the only tax that, that found its, its constitutionality within the 16th Amendment, though. In fact, most of the modern taxes, the fed, modern federal taxes that Americans have to deal with today were unconstitutional before the amendment. And after 13, you saw fairly quickly a number of new taxes being rolled out. So we're going to get into the history of these taxes. But first, I do want to share a valuable free resource with my listeners, free educational resource with my listeners. So we'll be right back after this message. Imagine learning more about economics in one short day than most people do in a lifetime. Imagine understanding how to demolish the common economic myths that many professional economists still believe after years of education. Imagine finally having a framework to confidently analyze the economic issues of our time rather than feeling overwhelmed by statist arguments. Well, stop imagining and start doing. Sign up and take the Mises Boot Camp online. In just three hours of lectures, a couple of slideshows, and a bit of reading, you'll be ready to take on the statist world of fallacies with no sweat. The best part is it's all free. For your convenience, you can find the link directly to the registration page in tonight's show notes at macroviewnews.com. So corporate taxes, capital gains taxes, estate taxes, and gift taxes, estate taxes, death tax, were all made constitutional by the 16th Amendment, which reads 
the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. And oh, did they ever lay and collect taxes on incomes from virtually all sources derived. So originally on personal incomes above a certain level and corporate incomes above a certain level, and then to finance World War I, the death tax was added in. And then to squelch the evasion of the death tax via gifting, a gift tax was applied in the mid-20s. And in the 50s, a tax on capital gains was instituted. All have since grown larger than the original rates, except for the the capital gains tax, which is actually lower than its original rate now. Uh, and, And all of them are applied at lower bounds than originally, save the case of corporate taxes, which have... Uh, you know, which which have seen their lower bounds of the top marginal rate grow in real terms since they are first implemented. So, gifted estate taxes have—I I hate even calling it the estate tax. It's a death. It's called a de- it's a death tax. They have been, in particular, been uh, you know recasted with much wider nets, so to speak. So, you know, let's actually dive into some of these actual numbers. The corporate corporate incomes began being taxed upon uh, the passing in Congress of the 1909 proposition to amend the Constitution to allow for it. And at first, it was just a 1% tax. And like regular income taxes, they rose into World War I, came down slightly during the 20s, and then in the 30s and 40s grew exponentially. So in 1918, the original 1% rate had grown to 12%. By 42, the top rate on corporate income was 40%. In 52, it hit a generational peak of 52%, where it held steady until about the mid-60s, briefly dropping down to 48% before going to a new all-time high of 53% in 1969. And then it came back down to 48%, where it would hold for basically the next uh, the next decade. And then it came down another two percentage points to 46. Then in 87 and 88, big reductions were made to, to bring down top corporate rates to 34%. They stayed at 34% until 94 when they increased to 35%. But at that point, the lower bound for the top rate was raised to nearly $30 million. It's since come down to about 18 million. And the, the corporate rate, at least the top bracket has stayed steady at about 35%, which at the time it was, it was instituted 35% was thought to be competitive, but you know, it's now the highest in the developed world. That was because Europe taxed corporations a lot higher back then, different countries in Europe at different rates that were higher. You also had uh, in, in, in China and in, in, in India, you had much higher corporate tax rates back then. I, I'm not even sure if uh, back then corporations were – they were basically all state-owned, so it was essentially 100% corporate tax. So you had a lot of different um, – you, you had a lot of things happening back when it was 35%. America was was basically the only game in town, and since then you've had Singapore and Hong Kong and Ireland, which now has really favorable corporate tax rates. You, you've had much more competition for for uh, corporate incorporation and, and headquartering abroad uh, since the thirty five rate was installed. Thirty five percent rate was installed. It's it's definitely not competitive anymore. So capital gains taxes actually were not first introduced until 1954 and began at 14, 14% of all net investment gains realized. The rate at which capital gains were taxed 
kind of bounced around a little bit from about 14% to 17%. And that was during the period of 54 when they started to about 76. And they didn't exceed 17%. But in 77, the capital gains rate was split into two different rates. One for long-term gains and another uh, rate applying to other capital gains. So the rate on both began at 18%, but then in subsequent years would be reduced to 16% for short-term gains and 14.8% for long-term gains. By 82, the the rate on both had been brought down to below 14.5%, but following the the 1986 so-called Reagan tax cuts would go up to 24% by 1988. The rates would fall just slightly over the next couple of years or so before reaching all-time highs under the Clinton administration of 25.1%. Since then, capital gains rates have been falling and are pretty much back down to their historical norm. As of 2015, they sat at 14% for regular gains, 12.5% for those deemed long-term capital gains. So once again tonight, we see some of the masking that was done to get the Reagan tax cuts passed. While income taxes on the top 50% decreased, both capital gains and Social Security taxes, the latter of which significantly ad- have significant adverse effects on median and low-income earners because it's a reg- it has a regressive structure, which we, we talked about last night. So there are also the gift and the death taxes. So let's start with the death, death tax. Now, of course, statists like to refer to this as... Uh, as the estate tax or a tax on inheritance, but ultimately it's a, it's a tax for dying wealthy. So it's a, it's a tax on leaving something to your offspring and leaving a legacy behind. Isn't it, isn't it something you can't even escape taxes and death. Not even religious organizations are that bold. You know, the, the first death tax was actually a 10% tax on inheritances above $5 million. But by 1919, it was up to 25% where it would stay throughout the first half of the 20s. So the lower bound on which the rate began to apply, however, was, was also raised up to $10 million. And by 1940, it, the death tax had increased to 70%. Then in 41, it was increased to 77%. And that was applicable. Again, you know, they, they, they lowered it. They lowered this time the lower bound to $10 million. From the 41 level of 50 million where it had been since the mid 30s. So in the 30s, they raised up the lower bound of the gift tax to 50 million. And then in the um, in in the 40s, they dropped it. They dropped it back down to 10 million during World War One, World War Two, excuse me. And then in 77, the rate was still at 77 percent, but began to decline over the next decade or so. And in 88, it was down to 55%, but now applied to everything above $3 million. Bush Jr., as part of his tax cut package, did provide some tax relief to the dead by lowering it down to 50%, and then eventually by the end of his term to 45%. But again, they lowered the lower bound, and the lower bound had found its way down to $2 million. In 2009, it was put on temporary hold, and then in 2010, the death tax came back, but at a generational low of 35% and a higher lower bound of $5 million now. So Obama got it raised back up to 40%, though, but then pegged the lower bound to inflation so that the lower bound would be $5 million in inflation-adjusted dollars, according to their 
somewhat flawed inflation measures. The last tax that we're going to talk tonight and on this series of tax history is, is the gift tax. So the gift tax was, was originally instituted because the death tax was avoided by gifting the inheritance to the offspring before, before death. And that was, it was just a commonly employed loophole. It was, um, pretty much everybody that was wealthy avoided the gift, the, the, the death tax that way. Cause there's no tax on gifting. So to be fair, both the death tax and the gift tax are still fairly, I don't, I don't want to say easy to avoid, but most estate lawyers have strategies that are, you know, well-tested and most ultra wealthy people endow legacy foundations with their fortune and become full-time philanthropists for causes that they they're personally uh, passionate about. So the rates can be somewhat deceptive, but case in point, wealthy individuals are likely influenced to act in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. And no one really knows the true consequences. So, you know, what is unseen and what would otherwise be done with the money if these tax laws weren't in place. But anyways, not to digress, let's get to the historical data. The gift tax started in the twenties with a 40% rate. And it temporarily came down during the Great Depression before being brought back up by FDR, like almost all other taxes, reaching 58% by 1942 and staying there until 76. By 77, the gift tax was hiked up to its all-time high of, of 70%. It stayed there until the 82 tax cuts, since which it was reduced to a low of 35%. But again, as the rate lowered, the lower bound to which the rate applied also was lowered and had already been reduced significantly during the era where it was, where, where the gift tax was 58% and where it was 70%. The last reduction in the gift tax was 2009, which reduced the rate by 10 percentage points from 45 to 35%. But in 2012, along with the, the death tax, the rate was brought back up to 40% where it's remained. And also in, in 2010, the lower bound to which the rate applied was increased from the all-time low of a million dollars back up to five million, and it was pegged to inflation, just like uh, they did with the lower bound to which the death tax applied. So, a couple of final thoughts here before uh, before we end this little two-part series. So now that you have the full history of taxes and tax tax rates in the U.S., at least as as much as as is available for you to learn, you should be able to easily and very clearly say that taxes have only gone up. No matter which way you slice it or dice it, there has not been an increase in taxes, only manipulations of tax rates. Taxes measured by a percent of G gross national product, GMP, are still at all-time highs. And on a per capita basis, government revenue in inflation-adjusted terms is at an all-time high. Tax rates on the bottom 50% of earners are at all-time highs when accounting for Social Security taxes. The broadening of bases, the lowering of the lower bound for top, top tax bracket has exposed more and more people to taxes such as the death tax and the gift tax over time. In, inflation in the 1970s pushed a whole bunch of middle income earners into higher brackets. Corporations in the top 50% have, and rightfully so, given the egregious level of taxation that was levied upon the most productive individuals and the most productive organizations, they have rightfully have seen applicable and effective tax rates decline in general, but also have been affected by the death tax, which despite how unpopular never seems to have enough political clout to actually go away. Median income earners 
and the up-and-coming entrepreneurs have really had it the toughest, though. Median income earners are now taxed more than they ever have been. True, they can comply with the state and behave the way the state would like them to and get their taxable income reduced, but that's not liberty. And finally, for, for my anarcho-capitalists and, and other liberty lovers out there, and they're probably going crazy because I haven't talked about how taxation is theft. So I'll just make clear, yeah, it's obvious taxation is theft. And it is also obvious, obvious at least to me, that you know, stateless society, while not perfect, would be infinitely less oppressive and would be infinitely more efficient and ultimately more satisfying for all individuals of all ideological leanings. Now, I will eventually do an episode on the logic behind why anarcho-capitalists and, uh, you know, a lot of libertarians, not just anarcho-capitalists, but other, other libertarians, um, minarchists included, why they believe taxation is theft. Some may say, oh, well, it's a necessary theft, but I'm going to go into the logic behind, the anarcho-capitalist logic behind why it should be fully voluntary and why there really shouldn't be a state and it should, there should be private law, law organizations that, uh, you know, that enforce individual rights. I will go into that on a follow-up episode, but, um, you know, I don't want to, uh, to, to disappoint any of my listeners, but I already have a planned three part, uh, episode coming up on banking and I'm going to be doing a, a two part episode, uh, on capital markets to tie it together following that. And the next episode is going to be about the Fed and central banking, which was going to be put, pushed off a little bit. I was going to do it in about a week, but because of the uh, because of the the announcement of the rate hike, I think that it would be good to uh, good to go over the Fed sooner than later. So that's going to be actually the next episode. I'm moving that up. So we have a number of great episodes coming up. I will though sooner or later do you know a a, a episode or maybe a couple of episode episodes on how you arrive at taxation is theft and just walk through all the different, uh, you know, all of the different logic behind it, maybe give some examples of that will help to paint the picture for people who may not think of taxation as theft. And, uh, you know, I'm also going to talk a little bit about in those episodes, how absent compulsory finance of the state apparatus, how, what we have been, you know, what we've come to know as public goods, how they would be paid for. So we hope uh, everybody enjoyed tonight's episode. Don't forget, if you're not already listening to tonight's episode from the show page, go and visit it where, where you'll find a slideshow with graphs displaying some of the data that I discussed tonight. You'll also find sources to the data and related articles, related episodes. You'll find links to the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom there and uh, a link to the Mises Boot Camp for people that are just getting started and trying to understand uh, understand Austrian economics. And you'll be one click away from all of our, our uh, archived episodes, number one through now number 25. So also you'll find, uh, you'll find links on that page to our, our social media accounts, uh, Facebook, and you can also go directly to Facebook, facebook.com slash the macro view and Twitter, which is at the macro view, but you'll find links on macroviewnews.com. So you might as well just go there. And most importantly, most importantly, do not forget to share us with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful evening. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.